64,000 is the median number of words per book. Average person reads about 200 words per minute. Simple math will tell us that is one book in 320 minutes. To accomplish this in seven days, numbers say you would have to read for 45 minutes a day. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. And happy day. How does slowing down sound to you today? Would you like to reduce the noise for just a bit? Are you ready to make a choice and decide to listen? My name is Igor, SF Walker. I am here to remind people to slow down, to reduce the noise, to walk their lives into a natural flow. Welcome back to the Book of the Week series. Every week as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. Today we look at what happened to you. Conversations on Trauma, Resilience and Healing by Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry, MD, PhD. In this video, we look at a book for anyone and everyone. There are far too many aspects of development, the brain and the trauma to cover in one book, especially a book written from stories. The language and concepts used in this book translate the work of thousands of scientists, clinicians, and researchers in the fields ranging from genetics to epidemiology to anthropology. We change our fundamental question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Stick around till the end. I will share with you some tools I haven't used that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. Asking the fundamental question, what happened to you, can help each of us know a little more about how experiences, both good and bad, shape us. What we have learned from interviews of many victims of traumatic events, abuse, or neglect is that after absorbing these painful experiences, the child begins to ache. A deep longing to feel needed, validated, and valued begins to take hold. As these children grow, they lack the ability to set a standard for what they do deserve. And if that lack is not addressed, what often follows is a complicated, frustrating patterns of self-sabotage, violence, promiscuity, or addiction. The brain can be divided into four interconnected areas. Brainstem, diencephalon, limbic, and cortex. The structural and functional complexity increases from the lower, simpler areas of the brainstem up to the cortex. Now, the cortex mediates the most uniquely human functions, such as speech and language, abstract cognition, 
and the capacity to reflect on the past and envision the future. One of the first things that happens when you activate the stress response is that the systems in the higher parts of the brain, including the ability to tell time, get shut down. Experience is processed from the bottom up, meaning to get to the top, quote-unquote, smart part of the brain, we have to go through the lower, not-so-smart parts. This sequential processing means that the most primitive, reactive part of the, our brain is the first part to interpret and act on the information coming in from our senses. Bottom line, our brain is organized to act and feel before we think. This is also how our brain develops, sequentially from the bottom up. The developing infant acts and feels, and these actions and feelings help organize how they will begin to think. The brain starts to create the complex memories that store these connections. Your personal catalog of experiences is being created. As we grow up, we're all trying to make sense of what is happening around us. What does that sound mean? What does it mean when someone rubs my back? What does that expression on his face mean? What else happens when that scent is present? For one child, eye contact means I care for you, I am interested in you. For another, it may mean I'm about to yell at you. Moment by moment, in early life, our developing brain sorts and stores our personal experiences, making our personal code book. Now that helps us interpret the world. Each of us creates a unique worldview shaped by our life experiences. The experiences in the first year of life are disproportionately powerful in shaping how your brain organizes. While a very young child may not understand the words used in language, they most certainly do sense the nonverbal parts of communication, like tone of voice. They can feel the tension and hostility in angry speech, and the exhaustion and despair of depressed language. And because the brain is growing so rapidly in those first years of life and creating thousands upon thousands of associations about how the world works, these early experiences definitely have more impact on the infant, infant and on the young child. I believe every environment has a tone. If you were to walk into a home as a stranger, not even speaking the language, you could absolutely feel whether this is a place where people are loved. Just as you can sense when something is off, you may not know what it is, but something feels off. You could walk into a preschool and say, wow, this is a great environment. You can feel the climate, climate, the emotional tone. And you can go to a different classroom in the same school and say, whoa, what is going on here? It is so powerful. There are parts of our brain that are very, very sensitive to nonverbal relational cues. 
and in our society, this is an underappreciated aspect of the way human beings do work. We tend to be a very verbal society. Written and spoken words are important, but the majority of communication is actually non-verbal. In a young child, the cortex is not yet fully developed. In children younger than three, the neural networks are not mature enough to create what is called a linear narrative memory. In other words, who, what, when, and where memory. However, in the lower levels of the brain, other neural networks are processing and changing as a result of our earliest experiences. Associations, our memories, are being created in these lower networks, and this has a huge impact on how trauma is stored in the brains of the very young. When time is interrupted or threatened by someone who invades my state of calm, I become irritable, anxiety-prone, and distressed about making decisions. Not the person I want to be in the world. The quickest and the most consistent way for me to get back to my old rhythm is to walk in nature, just focusing on my breath, my steady heartbeat, the stillness of a three tree, or the intricacy of a leaf can center me in the wholeness of all things. Music, laughter, dancing, even a party for one, knitting, cooking, finding what naturally soothes you not only regulates your heart and mind, it helps you stay open to the goodness in you and in the world. Rhythm is essential to a healthy body and a healthy mind. Every person in the world can probably think of something rhythmic that makes them feel better walking, swimming, dance, the sound of waves breaking on the beach. As we grow up, we find our own set of regulating rhythms and activities. For some of us, it is walking. For others, it is doing needlework or riding a bike. Everyone has their go-to options when they feel out of sync, anxious, or frustrated. The common element is rhythm. Rhythm is regulating. Regulation is also about being in balance. We have many different systems that are continually monitoring our body and the outside world to make sure we are safe and we are in balance, that we have enough food, water, oxygen. When we are regulated, these systems have what they need. Now, stress is what occurs when a demand or a challenge takes us out of balance, away from our regulated set points. When we get out of balance, we become dysregulated and we feel discomfort or distress. When we get back into balance, we do feel better. Relief of the stress, getting back into the balance, activates the reward networks in the brain. We feel pleasure when we get back into balance. From cold to warm, from thirsty to quenched, from hungry to satiated. This is one of the central problems in our society. We have too many parents caring for children with inadequate supports. The result is what you would suspect. An overwhelmed, exhausted, dysregulated parent will have a hard time regulating a, a child 
consistently and predictably. If you grew up in a household or a community characterized by unpredictability, chaos, and ongoing threat, you would very likely end up with an altered stress response system. This is especially true if the abuse, chaos, or exposure to violence took place in the home. And the very adults who were supposed to be nurturing and protecting you were actually the source of pain, chaos, fear, or abuse. Remember what we said about the pattern of stress activation. Even in the absence of major traumatic events, unpredictable stress and the lack of control that goes with it are enough to make our stress response system sensitized, overactive, and overly reactive, creating an internal storm. And also remember that humans are emotionally contagious. We sense the distress of others. Imagine a child in a room with a frustrated, angry father who has no job prospects, is disrespected in the community due to his status or his skin color, and then comes home feeling impotent and defeated. This parent's internal storm becomes the home's storm. His chaos becomes the home's chaos. Remember, relief of distress gives pleasure. We are relaxed for the first time in their lives. The pull to go back and use again is very powerful, though it is affected by how dysregulated you are. And by nature, and strength of the other sources of reward in your life. Every day we will fill our reward bucket with various sources of reward. And not every day is the same. Now the challenge with activating our reward circuits is that the pleasure fades. The feeling of reward is short-lived. The healthiest way to do this is through relationships. Connectedness regulates and rewards us. In every single interaction, there is a moment where we all wonder, do you see me? Do you hear me? Children know from birth whether their caregiver's eyes light up when they enter a room. They sense and they respond to tenderness, playfulness, compassion, and patience. They know the true feeling of quality time. They know they are loved. How you were loved informs the way your important neural networks are shaped, especially those core regulatory networks. The development process is very much front-loaded, meaning that the majority of brain growth and organization takes place in the first years of life. Now, this doesn't mean that the brain will not change after early childhood, but early life experiences do have a very powerful impact on how we develop. Collectively, the core regulatory networks, CRNs, can reach every part of the developing brain. In fact, the signals the brain receives from the CRNs play a major role about in how each of these areas develops. 
If CRNs are normally organized and developed, their signals will, re will result in a healthy development of, a, of important areas, limbic and cortex. But if anything disrupts or alters the CRNs, all of those and all of the brain and all the body, sy body systems influence and can be adversely affected. There are three types of developmental adversity that will predictably alter the CRNs and cause widespread problems. The first is disruption that happens before birth, such as parental exposure to drugs, alcohol, extreme maternal distress of the kind that can occur with domestic violence, for example. The second is some form of disruption of the early interactions between infant and caregiver. If these are chaotic, inconsistent, rough, aggressive, or absent, the stress response systems will develop in abnormal ways. And the third is any sensitizing pattern of stress. This can result from a host of circumstances, many of which we will talk more in detail later, but the basic idea Anything that can cause unpredictable, uncontrollable, or extreme and prolonged activation of the stress response will result in an overactive and overly reactive stress response. With the house, if you do a bad job with the foundation, you put in shoddy wiring and plumbing, but you decorate it with beautiful flooring and beautiful furniture, the core defects in the house may not be visible as you first walk through, but these early construction issues will lead to problems later on. The same is true with young children. Nearly every aspect of human functioning is influenced by early development influences, both when they are consistent, predictable, and loving interactions, and when there is chaos, threat, unpredictability, or lack of love. One of the key principles of neuroplasticity is that the pattern of activation makes a big difference in how a neural network changes. For example, moderate, predictable, and controllable activation of our stress response systems leads to a more flexible, stronger stress response capability that lets a person demonstrate resilience in the face of more extreme stresses. It's kind of like weightlifting for our stress response systems. We exercise the system to make it stronger. How do our stress response systems help us during this kind of ongoing trauma? The fight or flight response. The term was coined in 1915 by the pioneering stress researcher Walter B. Cannon. He used the phrase to describe the acute stress response to a perceived threat and the psychological changes that go along with it. We will call this the arousal response. In the arousal response, the brain will focus on the threat, tuning out any non-essential input from the body and from the outside world to prepare for fight or flight. Our heart rate increases, adrenaline and released stress hormones like cortisol are released. 
as this sugar stored in our muscles, blood is diverted to our muscles, the general focus of the response is external. Almost everyone has experienced some version of this activating response when feeling threatened. Where the threat is a visit to the dentist, a fender bender, an impending test, a heated argument, or the prospect of public speaking. You may feel your palms sweat, you feel anxious, you feel nervous. This is all due to the activation of the arousal response. To put the entire arousal response continuum in a nutshell, think of what happens when you come upon a deer in the woods. Deer are hypervigilant, continually flocking. If they hear something, or if the behavior of another deer changes, they freeze. This helps them localize the potential threat and makes it harder for sight-based predators to see them. Now, if the threat continues, they flee. But if you corner the deer, it will fight. Flock, freeze, flight, fight. Our brain uses a couple of key strategies to help us make sense of the world. First, it makes associations between patterns of sensory input that co-occur, creating memories from our experiences. Second, it uses these stored memories to categorize and interpret new experiences. And if new input is similar enough to previous experience, it will categorize this new experience as similar or equal to the past experiences. Our brain has a very different stress response to rely on. The disassociative response. Disassociation is a complex mental capability that we do use in everyday life. It involves disengaging from the external world and focusing on our inner world. Whereas the physiology of the arousal response is to optimize fight or flight, the physiology of disassociation, dissociation is to help us rest, replenish, survive injury, and tolerate pain. Where arousal increases heart rate, dissociation decreases it. Where arousal sends blood to the muscles, disassociation keeps blood in the trunk to minimize blood loss in case of injury. Arousal releases adrenaline. Dissociation releases the body's own painkillers. Encephalins and endorphins. And dissociation was the only adaptive option available to four-year-old Jesse in abusive moments. The ability to emotionally flee to his inner world. There are actually two lenses through which to view what happened to you. There's a science-based explanation of the effect early trauma has on the brain. Then there's a myriad of daily actions each of us do take through our lives that are a result of, and that do reflect back on, such trauma. These are the actions that on the surface look like poor decisions, bad habits, self-sabotage, self-destruction, the actions that cause other people to judge. This is why I believe so strongly in what happened to you approach. It avoids the judgment of what is wrong with you. 
addiction of any kind, anxiety, depression, rage, difficulty holding a job, or a cycle of unhealthy relationships, what I know for sure is that all pain is the same. And I believe that the despair that runs through nearly all destructive behavior is a deeply rooted feeling of unworthiness. There's a difference between thinking you deserve to be happy and knowing you are worthy of happiness. So often we block our blessings because we don't, at our core, feel that we are enough. Even if you have accumulated a house full of nice things and the picture of your life fits inside a beautiful frame, if you have experienced trauma but haven't excavated it, the wounded parts of you will affect everything you have managed to build. The trauma has three key aspects, the event, the experience, and the effects. The complexities of these three interrelated components are what should be considered in clinical work and studied in research. Over the years, we have developed collected developmental data from over 70,000 individual cases in 25 countries. This includes young children, children, youths, and adults. We've taken detailed histories of trauma and adversity, as well as histories of relational health, essentially connectedness, i.e. the nature, quality and quantity of connection to family, community, culture. Our major finding is that your history of relational history, your connectedness to family, community, culture is more predictive of your mental health than your history of adversity. Our second major finding is that the timing of adversity makes a huge difference in determining the overall risk. Your own experiences and the echoes of your ancestors' experiences influence the way you think, feel, and behave. There are major determinants of your health. And being aware of this can help us that everything we do right now is going to echo into the future. Our actions matter. We are impacting the next generation. So are we being as mindful as we could? We've talked about how emotional and behavioral patterns and experiences and beliefs can be passed down from prior generations. It clarifies for me on such a deeper level that understanding what happened to someone as opposed to what's wrong with them should be our priority. Yet so many people haven't had the opportunity to explore what happened to them and to understand what happened is still part of them and that these experiences are not their fault. So as we're learning how to connect our history to our current emotional and physical health, many trauma-related health problems are dismissed, missed, or misunderstood. But once you understand more about neuroscience and how our senses and brain translate our experiences into biological activity, the artificial distinction disappears. If you understand the neurobiology of trauma, you know that the physical abnormality is causing the abdominal pain seen with synthesized dissociation. You begin to see that a person's worldview 
can change their immune system. And that a positive conversation with a few friends can influence how a patient's heart or lungs function that day. The interconnectedness becomes clear. Everything matters. Being able to partially dissociate, to disengage from parts of the external threatening world and focus on these trained behaviors is key to success in competitive sport or high-pressure performance or in the arts. The terms flow and in the zone are used to describe some of these partial dissociative states. Mind wandering, reflective thinking, and creativity require that we stop in the middle of a moment, reflect, and spend some time in our head. We reflect on the past, we imagine the future, making dissociative disengagement a key part of daily life. And it is essential for relational reactions as well. Remember that a pattern of stress that is unpredictable, uncontrollable, and prolonged will sensitize the stress response system. And if dissociation is your preferred more of stress adaption for long periods of time when you are young, you will end up with a sensitized dissociative response to any challenge. This dissociative response is overactive and overly reactive. There are different maladaptive forms of self-regulation. But all of them tie into the same basic neurobiology of the stress and the reward system. We are always changing. We change from all of our experiences, good and bad. This is because our brain is changeable, malleable. It is always changing. We talked a lot about patterns of stress activation that create sensitization, which is essentially the opposite of resilience. But when we activate trauma memories, and our stress response systems in ways that offer controllability and predictability, we can begin to heal our sensitized systems. Healing takes place when there are dozens of therapeutic moments available each day for the person to control, revisiting and reworking their traumatic experiences. When you have friends, family, and other healthy people in your life, you have a natural healing environment. We heal best in community, creating a network, a village, a tribe, whatever you want to call it, gives you opportunity to revisit trauma in a moderate, controllable doses. Now that pattern of stress activation will ultimately lead to a more regulated stress reactivity curve. So the traumatized person with a sensitized stress response can become neurotypical, meaning less sensitized, meaning less vulnerable. They can ultimately develop the capacity to demonstrate resilience. The journey from traumatized to typical to resilience helps create a unique strength and perspective. That journey can create post-traumatic wisdom. Our species could not have survived if majority of our traumatized ancestors lost their capacity to function well. The pillars of traditional feeling were number one, connection to clan and the natural world. Number two, regulating rhythm through dance, drumming, and song. Number three, a set of beliefs, values, and stories 
that brought meaning to even senseless random trauma. And number four, on occasion, natural hallucinogens or other plant-derived substances used to facilitate healing with the guidance of a healer or an elder. It is not surprising that today's best practices in trauma treatment are basically versions of these four things. Unfortunately, few modern approaches use all four of the options as well. The medical model over-focuses on psychopharmacology, number four, and cognitive behavioral approaches, number three. It greatly undervalues the power of connectedness, number one, and rhythm, number two. Most people who are in the process of excavating the reasons they do what they do are met at some point with resistance. They're blaming the past. Your past is not an excuse, this is true. The past is not an excuse, but it is an explanation, offering an insight into the questions so many of us asked ourselves, why do I behave the way I behave? Why do I feel the way I do? For me, there is no doubt there are strengths, vulnerabilities, and unique responses are an expression of what happened to us. Very often, what happened takes years to reveal itself. It takes courage to confront our actions, peel back the layers of trauma in our lives, and expose the raw truth of our past. But this is where healing begins. The successful healing models have one thing in common. They emphasize regulation and connection. Regulate, relate, then reason. And there you have it. What happened to you? Conversations in trauma, resilience, and healing. Please do help out. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Share it too and spread the word. Leave a comment and share your thoughts. Subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. So you buy it and you read and you never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free human needs test on my website and find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management and relationship management even further, then do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.